Beings are penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning. I thought that I would talk about where we came from, about Suzuki Roshi and Sojin Roshi. And then next week, I would like Steve and Liam and Kate and Zach to talk about what the teaching is here. So not, not your personal experiences so much as just how we're expressing Suzuki Roshi and, and Mel Sonjin's teaching. Okay? That means you only have to talk for about five minutes, maybe 10. So as you know, Suzuki Roshi came here in the late fifties and left Oitsu Suzuki Roshi, home in Japan to take care of the temple, pulled him out of a Heiji, which he had loved, and sort of said, bye, I'm going to the United States, I'm going to America probably, taking your younger brother and your stepmother. Or maybe he got married once he got here. I can't now I can't remember exactly. But at any rate, I think it was took his stepmother and her daughter and came here to the San Francisco uh, sort of missionary uh, Soto Zen Temple on Bush Street and was helping. And then pretty soon he, he attracted a few people. It was not big that at the beginning. He attracted a few people and they were kind of beatniks. And uh, Sojin was one of them. And at that time he was a painter and a taxi cab driver. And there were some beat poets, people like Philip Whalen. And they started to sit sasin. And Suzuki Roshi taught them how to sit sasin. Liam, you remember his name, the guy that helped us with the, with the uh, patio. Greg? Doug Greiner. Doug Greiner. Anyway, uh, he talked, Doug talks about uh, sitting very early on there. And Suzuki Roshi came up behind him and pulled his shoulders back and stuck his knee in the middle of his back and pushed forward with his knee and pulled his shoulders back and taught him how to now this is my my version but taught doug how to honor the curve in his lower back <laughs> so i feel like i come by that honestly though i've never stuck my knee in anybody's back <laughs> pushed a lot of backs. And Sojin was looking for, as far as he knew, he was looking for like a Hasidic rabbi 
sort of, I guess, a mystical, more rabbi, not a more, not a particular, not a conservative one so much. And then later on, he said that when he met Suzuki Roshi, he found one. Mel started going because friends were going. And I think that sometimes they used to get high and then go. And he's talked about in the early days, uh, they just sat. And then eventually there started being some Dharma talks. But for a longer sitting, Suzuki Roshi sent them off to sit with a Chinese Zen teacher. And they would sit all day long. They would break for meals. And during the meals, they would talk. And the meals were absolutely delicious Chinese food. And uh, he talked about it with a great, Mel talked about Sojin talked about it with great fondness. So that's, but that's also how Suzuki Roshi took care of them. I, I think he didn't feel like he had a, a real place for them to sit all day because they were sort of extras at the Japanese Soto Zen temple. And most of the people that practiced there were um, first, second, maybe third generation Japanese. And they tended to treat it a little more like church and less like a zendo. I'm sure that some people sat, but it was mostly these beatniks. And he continued to, Suzuki Roshi continued to teach, and he did some outreach. He taught it, you know, people were teaching at community, at city college or San Francisco State or whatever, and he would go and give Dharma talks here and there. And he would also go down the peninsula that there was a sitting group there that uh, Trudy Dixon was part of. And that became eventually the, the uh, Kanando, I think, yes, the place where um, Les K and Suzuki Roshi used to go down there and give Dharma talks and they were recorded and they turned into Zen mind, beginner's mind, and that's what Trudy Dixon edited. And he later said that it wasn't really his book so much, but he learned a lot about how Trudy understood Zen. <laughs> I guess he thought it was okay. And Sojin continued to sit with him, and then I don't know have the date, but you know, in the, in the '60s they bought the uh, the building that we could now call City Center that had been a uh, sort of residential hotel for young Jewish ladies. And that's why there's Stars of David on the balconies. And stuff like that. It was designed by uh, Julia Morgan that lived there. And the Zendo in, at City Center used to be the ballroom because they had dances there. I'm not sure what the Buddha Hall was, because the dining room and the kitchen, I don't think, changed that much. Anyway, and Suzuki Roshi taught a lot by example. I'm sure I've told you the story about, Mel said that he, he asked the Katagiri and Suzuki Roshi were there, 
and Mel and some others have been relatively recently ordained. And so Mel said, you know, asked, how do you uh, put on and take off the okasa? And Katagiri started explaining it. And after a little bit, Mel realized that Suzuki Roshi had gone away a little bit out of the way in the corner, and he was taking off and putting on and taking off and putting on and taking off and putting on is okay, sir. He never said a word. And Mel was like, and I've told you the story, but I'll repeat it so we have it everybody's minded. When, uh, when Blanche was uh, really settling into practice and was beginning to sit longer sittings, she really, she felt, she felt settled at one point and she went to Suzuki Roshi for Doksan and said, I think, I think I'm getting the hang of this Zazen. And that's when he took his stick and he smacked it on the Zabaton and he said, don't you ever think you do Zazen. Zazen does Zazen. And then she kept out. <laughs> <laughs> Mel practiced there very, very regularly. He didn't live in the building, but he was, and he was there a lot. And when they got Tassahara, he went to Tassahara. He was Shuso at Tassahara. Suzuki Roshi sent him to, I think he may have been the first Shuso. And Suzuki Roshi had brought a teacher over from Japan, somebody who knew, knew the forms really well, who had uh, taught at Aheji. And Mel said that this guy did not speak English hardly at all, but they just, they, they laughed a lot and they smoked a lot. I mean, not weed, they just smoked cigarettes. And then Suzuki Roshi sent that guy back to Japan, I'm told, because he seemed to be trying to take over. So office politics is always and Suzuki Roshi gave a lot of lectures and he taught, he taught the Lotus Sutra and he taught uh, merging of difference and unity. There's a, there's a whole book of those lectures called, Brand, uh, it's called Branching Streams. And he trained people to some extent, though when Katagiri came later and helped and they, they used to do service, and Katagiri would be the, the uh, go on for the bells, the kokyo, and the fukudo. He'd do the, he'd do the makugyo, and they would chant the makahanya, the heart sutra in Japanese. They'd chant that two or three times, and that was service. And it's traditionally, usually in Japan, they, they bow three times. Though I learned that uh, from... Uh, from Akiba Roshi, that when sometimes he'll bow and he'll he'll hit his head three times, his for, you know, bring his forehead down three times at each bow, and it turns out that's shorthand for nine bows. So there is the tradition of nine bows. But uh, the story goes that somebody said to Suzuki Roshi, "Why do we bow? I don't I don't understand this bowing stuff." And uh, Suzuki Roshi said, "Okay, we'll bow nine times." <laughs> <laughs> so I think about that sometimes when we're when we're doing sashin or longer service and we bow nine times. 
he loved Suzuki Roshi loved having the place really clean and there's a man you may have heard of named Isan Dorsey. There's a wonderful book about him, a biography, I guess. Anyway, it's called Street Zen, because Isan was, uh, he was certainly gay, but he was, uh, what's the word? He was a transvestite, or at least he, he liked to dress up that way. and. And he had been one of the performers, I think, at a long ago famous nightclub called Finocchio's. But he also had been a heroin addict and you name it. And, and he came to Zen and he was a devoted Zen student, even though he was not, he wasn't real strong because of how hard he'd been on his body. So he, he slept in a lot. And you may, if you read about Kasahara times, you may come across that, that Isan. Isan was in bed a lot, but he was a remarkable man. Anyway, when he lived at uh, City Center and he was, uh, he was the work leader and the work leader at City Center is responsible for you know, keeping the common areas clean. And Isan was apparently fanatic about keeping the hallway, the, the floors, clean and free of dust and if you've been there they're um they're like tile i think it's actually painted cement but it's it's very shiny and smooth and that's the kind of thing that just collects dust and isan used to be just you know if he wasn't doing something else he'd be cleaning those and he had the students in the practice periods or whatever cleaning them and the story is at one time Suzuki Roshi, Isan was a tall person. He was he was um, maybe about as tall as Zach, maybe taller. Anyway, he was he was he was tall, and Suzuki Roshi was very short. And he, apparently one time Suzuki Roshi went running up and jumped on his back, hugging him, and telling him how wonderful he was for keeping the the, the common areas so clean. And that story gets told to every work leader, or at least it used to be, at, uh, at City Center. And they all kept the, uh, kept the floors really nice. What do I know? I haven't lived there since 1999. But anyway, I hope so. I hope it's still the case. So Mel practiced there regularly and eventually uh, he says that Suzuki Roshi called him in and he rolled out, or he had Katagiri like roll out a long mat of some sort. And he sat at one end and he told Mel to sit at the other. And he, he said to Mel, you know, I know that you haven't been so good, uh, but, and that I, I know you've been really trying. Mel was, as, as his wife, Liz uh, described it. Uh, he was he was chick bait, <laughs> and you've seen pictures of him back in those times. He was quite slender and intense looking, and he played the recorder and so on. So um, at any rate, Suzuki Joshi said that, and then he said, "And I, I, uh, and I would like you. I'd like. I'm inviting you to." 
to join our order. So that was how Mel was invited to become a priest, and he did become a priest. And eventually, Suzuki Roshi suggested to him that he go to Berkeley and work. There was a sitting group there already, um, but uh, you know it, it, it didn't have a very much of a shape yet. So Sojin went to Berkeley, and that basically was the start of the Berkeley Zen Center. And they lived in a big, their big house in, uh, on uh, Dwight Way which is still there. And it was, it had a, the, 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 the uh, it had one of those really peaked roofs in it. And the Zendo was in the attic. So the attic was kind of a finished attic. And, and um, people sat and the, they sat, uh, here's the floor, you know, and they sat in between kind of, so that there, the angle of the roof was right above their heads. And people always wondered why, you know, they used to have somebody walking around with a, a stick to, um, we call it the wake up stick, you know, to hit your back, your shoulders. And the people have asked me, why do the people from Berkeley always walk stooped over? Because <laughs> <laughs> they had to avoid hitting the roof or the ceiling. What kind of thing Mel, people said about Mel was he was just there. And he was there. They had, I think they had like a, a coffee can and people just put money in it. And if he needed money to buy something, he would just take it out. And that's how he thought that things ran. As a friend who's knowledgeable about such things, the word said that what he, he didn't, I mean, I'm sure he had some that way he under, he must have come to understand that, 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 you know, that there's all these people that are making it work and that are giving money and taking care of things. And eventually, you know, their budget now at Berkeley, I don't know if it's a million dollars yet, but it's, you know, it's pretty high and they have mortgages, <laughs> things like that. Roof repairs. But Mel was absolutely devoted and one of the many stories that Lou Hartman told, you know, when he and Blanche started sitting, it was partly because of uh, Wang Bo's poetry and various experiences that Blanche had had. And for Lou, it was a, a lot about books. And one time, he, Mel used to, like, he'd be there, he'd be, He'd just be out like gardening and watering and stuff in the yard. It was very accessible. And so Lou tells a story about um, running up to Mel one time with some book that he had just read and said, Mel, Mel, you've got to read this book. <laughs> and Mel said, I, no, I don't need to read the book. You, you can sit with us if you want. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how he was. Um, and my experience of him was that he was very supportive. Not always so nice, but supportive or and supportive. And he too talked about branching streams. But I want to show you something. This is a cocoa. This is a very small one. It means it holds an incense. 
Sometimes it holds like flowers, but this holds chip incense. And the thing is they're small, so you could put it in your sleeve and take it out and offer at various um, altars. And uh, Mel gave me this. Okay. All right. Now he gave it to me like that, right? And so I tried to open it and I couldn't open it. I couldn't open it. I'd turn it and I couldn't open it. Mm -hmm. And he'd take it and he'd turn it and he'd open it. And then I'm saying, what is it? And then he'd give it back to me and I would turn it and I couldn't know. I'm pulling up on this and I can't open it. And we went back and forth like that. And I imagine he was, he may have very well been remembering Suzuki Roshi, showing him how to put on and take off an Okesa. Well, it turns out that you have to, <laughs> oops, now I've done it. You have to turn it just a little way. Uh-oh. <laughs> Too bad. And that's never gonna open again. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm afraid, I don't know which way I turned it too far. So here we go. Anyway, so here's the thing. You, you, you turn it very gently. So you just turn it a little bit and it comes off. If you turn it too far, it, it uh, seals up again. And so I was, you know, I was trying to unscrew it, but it isn't, it isn't, that's not what happens. It's just a, little tiny turn and it pops right off literally pops right off anyway that was a major teaching for me and that's why i was mumbling to myself because i know i gave some stuff to one of michael wenker's students and i'm standing there looking at the the uh cupboard where all the doan stuff is and the incense and so on and thinking I didn't give that in rude, did I? No, I couldn't. No. <laughs> anyway, so Sojin taught a lot by example and little things that were not so little. I know I've told this story before, but not a lot. I used to be the steward of the Doksan hut at Berkeley Zen Center which meant that I kept it clean and dusted and made sure there was back then incense and the candles were trimmed and so on. And then one time during a work period, during a sashin, I decided that it was time to really give it a good cleaning. And somebody had suggested to me that it was a good idea to um, vacuum tatami mats every so often and like turn them over and vacuum them back. And his doksan hut, the floor was tatami mats. So I took everything out of there. There were some, you know, little little stands and altars and zafus and zavatans. And then, you know, his his staff and his he had one of those sticks with the with the the rings on top and whatever those things. And uh, I had put some of them in his office, and I did the, I did the vacuuming, and I came back and to get them and i just you know i was just sort of grab things and he looked at me and he said handle those with the respect that they're due so i took them using two hands one by one back to the 
Jackson. And I do think of that. And you may have heard me say, use two hands. And it's partly what uh, Suzuki Roshi's uh, widow, who was a, she was a tea teacher, and uh, she taught people at city center that two hands. You don't just grab all the all the pots left over from a meal in the basement to get back up to the kitchen. You don't just grab everything and pile them all together and carry them up in a precarious pile. And Sojin would teach the same. And he, I think he kind of got out of this, but for a long time, he, after each meal, he'd have the cook come into his office. And he would talk to you about the meal. And I learned a lot. He also, when he was at Tassajara, when I was Tenzo, you'd meet with him every five days, because a week there is a five-day week and talk about the meals that had been and then what you were planning and he he had a keen sense and he also had an artist's sense and taught me that you need to think about what it looks like so that you're not serving three sort of beigey gray things that there be something that uh is you know some color and uh, so if you're serving sesame soybeans you don't serve a gray cereal the sesame soybeans just turn out sort of grayish it's it's soybeans and uh tahini and soy sauce basically and it's quite delicious at any rate you know it's sort of a beige brownie color <laughs> <laughs> and uh and often it was served with daikon pickles, which are also sort of a beigey color. <laughs> so I learned I served it with, uh, I, well, I served it with like grapefruit sections or something acidic, but with a little bit of color, like pink, you know. Um, but this was interesting as I had never thought about that. I think that's enough. I don't know, does anybody have any questions or something that you remember from Sojin's teaching? I know we've had the Ron story about uh, you just, you do it right. And you follow the forms, even if there's only one person there or two people there. And that Mel approved it, which I'm sure he did. He did say to me once that the, the places that survive the senders and so on that survive are ones that uh, are, are relatively strict. I'm not, I don't know if that's true or not. But compare, I've been thinking about all the stuff we have. And that one reason is because we've been really pretty much following the forms. And a lot of places, our size, you know, we just have a city group and they might have one bell. And, uh, maybe a Buddha or maybe the head of a Buddha or maybe a rock or something and that and some Zafus and stuff, but that's about it. Huh? <laughs> if we got stuff. Anyhow, now I'm done. Mary? Yes. I forget, and I may have known this at some point, but you started practice at City Center, correct? No. And, and then you practiced it? 
You started at Berkeley. No, I started at Green Gulch. Green Gulch, right. Yeah, I, I went to a weekend retreat that Yvonne Rand led. It was called On Being Awake, a Mindfulness Retreat for Women. And it was actually introduction to Zen practice. I found out there was a Berkeley Zen Center and that it was actually pretty close to where I lived. So on the Monday after that weekend retreat, I went and found it and looked at their schedule. And on Tuesday, I started sitting there. And Saturday, I went to the Zazen instruction. I just was curious and I, I, I wondered how that was for you. I mean, did you just go and then keep going every day? And I'm, I'm a little confused about how you practiced early days. Well, I went to this thing. I, I was on the Green Gulch mailing list because my law partner and I had gone there to sort of do an office retreat. And I'd heard about it from friends. I'd never been there. And so I got on their mailing list. And then one day this thing came and, and I was you know involved with Al-Anon. So one day this brochure came, I guess, and it had listed this retreat and it sounded, it sounded good. I had been to Tassajara and been to Zazen instruction, <laughs> terrified that if I didn't do it right, I shouldn't go to the Zendo. And that's partly me and it was partly the person that did it. And uh, so I went to this weekend retreat. And uh, Friday night, we said we're sitting around in circle and, and Yvonne asked everybody, each person, you know, tell, say what brought you here. And I heard myself say, I thought it was time to begin. And I didn't know I thought that. <laughs> Uh, what that meant at the time. And so one of the people in that retreat was a woman who practiced at Berkeley Zen Center. And she told me that there was a place at Berkeley Zen Center, and it was only about six blocks away from where I lived. So that retreat that weekend, it just felt like coming home. And so on Monday, as I say, I went and found it and found the schedule. And I did start sitting right away and I did start sitting every day. And on Saturday, I know I went to Zazen instruction, but I think I was already sitting there. I'm not sure because Yvonne taught us how to get in and out of the Zendo and so on. Anyway, whenever I started and I just basically sat every morning for 40 minutes. And then um, the, the practice there was to sit for an hour. But after 40 minutes, there was a stop on the big bell and you could move or or you could leave if you needed to, you know, to get to work. And I needed to to walk a dog and to work, get to work. So I always left at the clunk. So I never saw service or anything. And um, I just kept going. And then I, I went on a, and I went there on Saturdays. But I didn't go until 930. So again, I did not see service. I didn't see people bowing, except for lecturers. So I didn't know that everybody did it. And I guess I kept on going to Green Gulch on Sundays. And, uh, and, and looking at people bowing and thinking, Oh, my Lord. And I'm never doing that. <laughs> 
And then one Saturday I went and sat at uh, 9.30 and I was, I was there, you know, say at 9.25 and I get sit in my place and I'm minding my own business facing the wall and somebody behind me says, please uh, turn around and set up for the full moon ceremony. <laughs> and I didn't know what that was, but I, I, I turned around and it was like a sea of Zabatons on the floor. So I did what everybody else did. And I'm standing there and then pretty soon, of course, everybody started bowing and bowing and bowing and bowing. And I was penned in. I was way far away from the door. And I did not have the uh, strength of character to leave. I mean, it would have been a huge big deal to tromp all over all these people. So I just kept bowing and laughing to myself like, yeah, you said you'd never do this. <laughs> and now I love it. So. I'm interested in your comment about Mel's comment that the, the uh, Zendos or temples that are strict last longer or are more successful or something. And then you mentioned all our equipment. When I think of strict, I think maybe more of the forms or maybe you could say a few words about well, we haven't lasted, but it lasted 25 years, so maybe I shouldn't worry about it too much. But um, I, we never, I never really t discussed it with him, but I think he meant uh, that did follow the forms. It did, like, for example, it did service. Because there, there are places that have a sitting group that just don't do much of anything, and they don't ever do a full moon ceremony, and they don't. Um, they don't, they don't do one day sittings. They don't do orioki, say. And I, I mean, I have mixed feelings because I, I, you know this, the, you know, the first time we did orioki in the Zendo, I remember looking at you, Zach, and we both sort of went, oh, <laughs> oh it matters. Guess what? Um, so I think you know, not a, not a particular thing, but that kind of thing, or, you know, not, not just sitting sort of nine to five with a bag lunch. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what he meant, but I think it was, it was things like that. And, and, and um, chanting the Heart Sutra, and not necessarily the Makahanya, we do that because Janet cared so much, and every, every time I've brought it up since, people say, oh, no, let's keep doing it. It's wonderful. We love it. So, okay. And I think, you know, there's a story about Suzuki Roshi preparing for lecture and, you know, working really hard on it. And uh, Mitsu, his wife, said, why, why are you spending so much time on that when only like two or three people come? And he just said this, just... I'm offering the Dharma, which is similar to uh, what Ron said and what Mel, you know, Ron said, you, when it's time for lecture, you follow the forms, you just do it, even if it's only a couple people here, you know, which I tend to agree to agree with. And this last year, especially, I've been feeling like it's at some more intimate time and I'm just not willing to be so formal, but I, 
I'm not sure that's a good idea, but uh, or you know, in the long run, but for now. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Nobody's complained. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> the clock was turned so that it was in the right place, but it was turned backwards, so you couldn't see what it said. Okay. Liam and Kate, just so you know, on the 16th, you'll be asked to say some words of appreciation or whatever you want to say. Just so you know, and uh, the uh, people here, I'll talk to them, but I just wanted to make sure that I, I said it before I forgot. Um, I think that's it. Yes. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Illusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. <laughs> 